Hey everyone, welcome to the 28th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Brad Stein. Brad is one of the most accomplished American coaches of the last 30 years as he helped Jim Courier reach world number one, coach Kevin Anderson in the finals of Wimbledon, and is currently working with the 35th ranked player in the world, Tommy Paul. On today's episode, we discuss how the backhand slice sent Jim Courier to number one in the world, his footwork fundamentals, and something called a double reverse Sydney. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Brad, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much. Great to be here, man. I appreciate you inviting me. I'm excited to have you on. I've known you for a while. Actually, I think the, I think the first time I met you was, remember when you were coaching Danny McCall and we were recruiting him? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's going back a ways. It's kind of funny. I, I saw Dan um, in Houston a few weeks ago. I was, I was there doing a little commentating for that, uh, the All-American Cup that they held, the first annual and uh, Dan heard me, you know, on TV and uh, messaged me and said, hey, I'm living in Austin now. I'm only about an hour away. Can I come down? And so he came down and we, we grabbed brunch on us on the Sunday of that event and stuff. It was good to see him. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I remember we were, you know, I didn't know who you were at the time. So we're recruiting Dan and then they go, oh, he's coached by this guy, Brad Stein. And I'm like, oh, OK, that's fine. And then I looked you up and I'm like, oh, wow, like. Oh, he's got a he's got a really good junior coach here. Like this guy, Coach Courier, and and he's coached a lot of great pro players. And I'm like, man, okay, he's got it made. But you know, you're an awesome coach. You've been around for a very long time, which means you've coached a lot of great players. I do want to start going all the way back to the kind of the early '90s. You did coach Jim Courier. You were with him when he reached number one. So you've coached a lot of pros. But what is the difference, or or how was that experience different when you're literally working with the best player in the world? Man, I, I mean, obviously there are some differences, but I, I would like to think that from my standpoint in approaching the player, that it's not that different, you know, that, that I give the same kind of quality of, of information and effort and time to everybody that I do or did with, with Jim at that time. You know, I was a, I was a much younger, obviously, uh, um, coach at that time. Jim and I started at the end of 19, 1990, I think we, we did a little bit of off season in, uh, in late 1990. I was still coaching collegiate tennis at the time and was working at Fresno state. And I got a call from Tom Gullickson, who was the head of men's tennis for the USTA. And Jim had contacted Tom a month or two earlier and was looking to make a, a, a coaching change. And they had committed and, and, hooked Jim up with working with Jose Higueras, but Jose didn't want, really want to travel very much. So they, they put together a short list of guys that Jim was interested in traveling with. And I was on that list. So I, I, I had the, the luxury and the pleasure of really mentoring under Jose during those first few years, especially when I worked with Jim, which gave me a really strong foundation of, the things that we wanted to be applying and doing with Jim. Jose was the guy that really set the, the um, groundwork. And, and the, ultimately, for Jose, I think it was about picking a couple of different areas that he felt were really key areas for Jim, one of which was developing a slice backhand. Anybody that is old enough to remember seeing Jim Courier play back in those days, he had a really, really funky grip on his backhand side. And when we started with him, he was about 28 in the world, but 
he really struggled to defend on the backhand side, you know, out of the backhand corner. If guys could, if guys could really push him and make him have to work hard to go to that side, he had a lot of trouble with that grip that he had. And so Jose recognized right away that we, he needed to develop the ability to defend out of the backhand corner. And that was his decision was to develop and give him a backhand slice, which Jim at that time, Jim really didn't have a slice at all. He wasn't slicing the ball on that side of the court at all. And, um, I'm a big believer from that period of time. That's probably one of the things I've done with almost every player I've ever coached is work on developing a slice backhand if they don't use one very much and or developing a better slice backhand. And if you fast forward to where I'm at right now, working with Tommy Paul, uh, that's one of the things that we've done with Tommy. When I first started with Tommy, Tommy had a slice to some degree, but he never really used it in the matches very much. Now, if you watch him play, he, he slices much more regularly when he's really, really stressed and, um, and having to defend out of the backhand corner. Are there any key fundamentals or principles that you have for the backhand slice since it's such an important part of your coaching philosophy? I mean, I, I think that it's, it's always a little bit different, you know, when you look at specific players, like, like what they're doing. But I, I, think, I think there's a couple of key elements. Obviously, the slice is it's a little bit of a different swing because it's, you're hitting the ball with a slightly open racket face. So it's a little bit more of a, a high to low swing rather than a low to high swing. I'd really like to see guys try and maintain the swing path through the line of the ball relatively long, you know, as they're coming underneath the ball and creating underspin on the ball so that it's not, it doesn't get too choppy and, and there's a little bit more penetration on the ball. Are you, are you saying vertically choppy? Or yeah, vertically choppy? choppy. You know, I mean, you, you're, coming, you're coming from a high position to a low position on the ball, but you don't want to make that too vertical. You know, you don't want to make that too da- uh, high to low, like, and really chopping the ball from that position. I always, I always like to use the visual with players of suggesting that if, if they were trying to swing their racket through an open window, that they would, you know, the, a window that's probably two by two or four by four or something, that, you know, you would go straight through that window so that you weren't hitting the sides or breaking the window or anything rather than, and that part comes really with the perspective of, you know, just behind the ball to just in front of the ball and through the contact point, you're obviously coming from a little bit higher, but if you're coming down at a very, you know, extreme angle, you're probably not going to make it through that window and your ball is going to have a lot more underspin, but it's probably going to have way, way less penetration. So those are some things that we look at, obviously turning sideways, you know, getting your, your shoulders turned to the ball. It's funny. Um, Another guy that I've been involved with a lot, Tom Gullickson, who's another one of my mentors, you know, and I consider him to be a great coach along with Jose Higueras. He likes to talk about what he calls the, the family of bottom edge skills. So bottom edge, meaning that anytime the bottom edge of the racket is leading through the swing, which basically, you know, is any kind of a slice or a volley, you know, he talks about the, the full slice is like the big brother to the volley. They're basically the same action. Being able to dig a ball out of the ground that's short and low in front of you on a backhand or a forehand are you know bottom edge skills. I think there's a lot of players nowadays, especially with the more extreme Western grips on the forehand side and even on the backhand side to some degree, that or two-handers, that a lot of players, especially younger players, don't have very good bottom edge skills. 
And I think that's an important skill for, for kids to try and learn, you know, players to try and learn at an earlier age. I think one thing I see, at least when you, I've never heard that term bottom edge skills, but I love that. But, you know, you talked about the slice, it's slightly open, but I, I think a lot of amateurs, it's like very open. Yeah. So when they're thinking bottom yeah. edge, it's, it's almost like horizontal. And you're like, it's only a couple degrees. Open yeah, exactly. Where? And I think that's a misconception a lot of people have. Yeah, definitely. And and if you, I mean, obviously the the slice was a much more prevalent shot back in the golden era of tennis a little bit more. You know, if you go way back and you look at guys like Ken Rosewall, you know, who who's recognized as having had a great slice, a little bit more. His his shot was a little bit more of a drive slice, you know, than than just a normal slice. But kind of, you know, I, I ask players as they're developing those kind of things and if it's something new for them to kind of mess around with that stuff, you know, try and hit the ball with a little bit more drive through it than cutting it. And then at other times, you know, maybe you want to put a little bit more backspin on it and try and be able to do that. But I, I think that that skill is such a significant skill. And if you look at the guys at the very top of the game, you know, like uh, for me, the slice backhand is the is the shot that really propelled Jim Courier. You know, if we go back to your original question, it's the shot that really propelled Jim to be number one because being able to defend out of that backhand corner gave him an opportunity to stay in way more points and then ultimately find a forehand. And, you know, Jim had one of the biggest forehands, you know, in his era. And once he got a forehand, it was pretty hard for players of that time frame to get the ball away from his forehand. And he was able to, to kind of dominate a lot of points from that position. But a lot of that was based on being able to get out to that wide ball and slice. And guys were, you know, back in the early nineties, guys were attacking the net a little bit more. And um, Jim developed a, a really nice little chip short as guys were coming in off the backhand side that he would dump at guys feet, you know, cross court or down the line make the guys have to volley up. And then out of that, he would find a forehand most of the time to hit a passing shot. So all those things combined really to give him a chance, you know, and you look at, at that level at the pro level and the very top levels, you know, if you're playing a quarters or a semis or a final and you're playing another top 10 guy, the difference between winning and losing so often is maybe three to five points, five to eight points, something like that. So, you know, if you can translate a little slice like that on a massive point, you know, saving a break point or making a break point because you get a little chip short in front of the guy and then are able to run around and find a forehand to pass. I mean, those kind of things make such a massive difference within the context of those matches. It's so funny now that I'm a coach and I can see what my coaches did with us, but you're talking about that dink slice passing shot and Jay Lapidus, my coach at Duke, who I, I know that you know, he used to call that shot a number bed like the sleep number bed. And he's like, you're dialing it down. <laughs> I like that. I've and never like, heard that one. A number yeah. So bed. like, so, so we all, we all loved the nickname. And so like someone would come into the net and we'd all hit this little short slice and he'd be like, great number bed. And we all loved him <laughs> saying it. And so we all fell in love with the shot and it's like this amazing defensive opportunity. And like you said, that can swing a match and it gives a guy second thoughts about coming in on that side. So I always laugh when I, when you see that shot, I go, Oh, he's talking about a nice number bed. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Actually. I've never heard that one at all, but I like it. So can you explain to like, to the, the listener out there, you said that Jim's ability to hit a backhand slice is what got him his forehand. Can you explain tactically how he accomplished that? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, um, I, you're going to learn from listening to me talk about this. Cause I, I, I try to credit everybody that I steal information from 
because because basically I've plagiarized my entire coaching career. But it's you know this is this is one that I got from uh, from Dustin Taylor, who you know is now coaching at Oklahoma State. I met Dustin through coaching at the USTA, and great guy. I think he's a very competent coach, and and um, he likes to use this terminology that he calls slice and sting, slice and sting. So you using the slice to set up your forehand, and you know there's. There's so many variations on what you can do with the slice. I mean, we've already mentioned a couple, you know, but I usually say that there's there's four basic positions that you slice from. And, and these are things that we worked on with Jim when he first started developing his slice and that I've done with everybody, really, you know, and especially if you're a two-hander. The first is when you're on extreme defense out to the backhand corner. So if you're stretched and you, you know, if, you, if you're having to really try and manipulate the ball with your left hand uh, on a two-hander, you know, and you're, you're basically not really able to like get the racket head through the ball with your right hand anymore. You're just having to almost use like all left hand. You should probably be slicing because you're, you're going to be able to extend the racket another, I don't know, 12, 14, 18 inches. I've never done the exact measurement or whatever, but we know you can reach further with a one-hander than you can with a two-hander. So if you let go on that kind of ball, you're going to be able to hit a much more effective slice if you have a good slice. So extreme defense, a ball that is short and low and in front of you where most two-handers when you have to reach up to that ball you can't really do anything with it you're you're kind of like just lifting the ball and that ball tends to sit in the middle of the court and just lets your opponent become really aggressive and offensive on that ball so that's the second one the third one is transitioning when it's appropriate like i always say okay like if you're if you have a very good two-hander and the ball's up and it's in your strike zone you're not going to slice you're going to hit that ball you know, and so it's a matter of finding where's your where's your right spot to slice from. Where's your you know spot that you can still hit over the ball? I'll give you a perfect example of that is when I worked with Kevin Anderson. Lower balls coming forward on transition. If Kevin took the ball cross court with his two hander, he could pick the ball up from like two inches off the ground, and he could make that ball cross. But he had a tendency at times to then try and translate that to playing down the line. And oftentimes he would miss that out of his two-hander. And we used to talk all the time about the fact that like, if you're going to play that ball line, that's where you have to let go and hit a, a one-hander and hit a slice. So that's a transition ball that, you, you, know, you know, the ball dictates, the position of the ball dictates that you're going to have to play a slice out of that. So that's the third position. And the fourth, in my opinion, is always because I want a slice. Because tactically, I want to slice to the other guy because I recognize that, man, this guy doesn't like it when I slice. He's uncomfortable with it. He, he struggles to generate pace off of my slice. And so I'm just within the context of the rallies going to slice every now and then to like throw him off or change the rhythm of the point. And to me, those are the four areas. And if you, you look at, you know, in the late 80s and through 1990 when Jim was playing and basically had no slice and then look at him through the best years of his career, you know, 91, 92, 93, and then through the rest of his career, when he was still playing very, very good tennis, his slice became a, a very, very significant aspect of his game. And you saw how the ability to pick and choose those shots in the right moment gave him a chance to just stay in the points longer than if he had had to play his two-hander with that really odd, funky grip, which which that grip that he had back in those days, I mean, it, it made, I say back in those days, he still has that grip, so. But, but he, um, it shortened his reach on the wide ball to defend even more because his grip was so extreme that he wasn't able to really extend his arms fully from that position. And so 
you know, there were pros about that backhand that Jim had, you know, when he was returning like off of a kick serve or, or even first serves to the court, man, his swing was so compact that, you know, his full backswing was very, very small and he could take the ball ridiculously early out of that on a ball that was coming up, but it was just anything that was down or was away from him was a really tough ask for him to have to play with that two hand. You mentioned working with Kevin Anderson and you were with him in 2018. He made the finals at that Wimbledon, correct? He did. Yeah. So, so what were some of the things, you know, you were working with him and, and what were some of the keys I'm assuming you, you did a backhand slice as well, but was there anything specifically to him that you felt like helped him make that jump and, and make that great run? Yeah, I think, I mean, I would say that, you know, that, that was a buildup from the start of the year. You know, Kevin had a really good start to the year, especially once we got back here to the U S I had started with Kevin in the off season prior to that in 2017. And then I saw him, you know, compete really for the first time live, you know, with me as his coach in early 2018 you know, we, I, I saw some things that I wanted to address and, and we, we talked about a number of things. And, and then once we got to Wimbledon, I think actually looking back on it, it'd be interesting to hear Kevin's take on this, but I, I, I think that for me, the most significant conversation that we probably had was a week or so before Wimbledon started. We were actually practicing at the, um, at the practice facility at Wimbledon, Orangi Park. And Kevin plays with an extremely heavy racket. At that time, I think it was definitely the heaviest racket on tour. It's around 385 grams. A lot of people won't understand that necessarily, but that's, a, that's an extremely heavy racket. Very, very heavy. Just, just to give you an idea, Taylor Fritz, for example, plays with a racket that's about 300 grams. It's actually a little bit under 300 grams, which is a very light racket. I think Taylor plays with one of the lightest rackets. So I think the majority of guys... Fed was playing around 340, 345, something like that. So Kevin's at 385 grams. And I commented during a practice session about how that racket with that weight was great on the hard courts, was great on the clay, but I'm not sure that it was going to benefit Kevin as much on the grass where the ball stays low all the time and especially mid-court balls where you have to pick the ball up and get it up and down out of that position with some aggression to be able to hurt guys and come in behind them. And Kevin being Kevin, anybody that knows Kevin Anderson, you know, and I think this is true of most guys that become great tennis players. Kevin's a pretty stubborn guy, you know? And so during this practice session, when I said that to him, I said, I said, I just think the racket's too heavy. You know, I think we should drop some weight for the, for the grass court season. And he was like, no, 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 the racket's fine. I can do it. I can do all this stuff. And so he was basically committed to proving me wrong that he could take balls out of the middle of the court that, you know, on grass are eight inches off the court and snap them up and down through the court with some like heavy topspin and still penetrate the court. And because of that conversation, he just made such a commitment to like making that ball all the time. But I think that was really one of the key elements because obviously Kevin with Kevin's serve, I mean, Kevin's just got a massive game in general. He has a laser beam backhand out of his two-hander. So he's generating plenty of short balls. And he just, you know, you got to make sure that you're executing on those kind of shots. And and I think that shot being able to get the forehand up and down out of the middle of the court is probably for that tournament, one of the most significant things that allowed him to, to make the final. 
that and of course the the infamous which people can find on instagram and stuff but the the uh diving left-handed forehand that he hit at um <laughs> at i think it was i think it was uh love 15 at the time when he was playing isner i think it was 24 all in the in the fifth set and um you know, Kevin makes a return and, and uh, John plays the ball behind him and Kevin kind of slips and falls and lunges and sort of dives, you know, as, as well as a six foot eight guy can like dive from that position and hits a, hits a one handed left handed forehand with his hand about six inches up the grip and actually hits a good forehand cross court to Isner's backhand, gets him back in the rally, hits like two or three more balls and ends up winning the point and ends up breaking that game. And I mean, that was like, that was just an insane moment in that match, you know? It's so funny. You talk about, you know, so your, your journey, give him honest feedback. Hey, the racket might be too heavy. And the stubborn competitive nature is watch. I'm going to show you, I can do it. It's so funny. I had a, um, I had a doubles team at Duke and we had a bunch of injuries. These two guys had to play together and neither one had a great serve and neither one could volley that well. (laughs) I'm I guessing they were playing like, three. They must have been playing three for you. They, they, they were playing three, and, <laughs> and they never played together, and they had a match on Friday. And I wasn't even trying to be – I was just trying to figure out how to win. And I said, hey, guys, listen, you know, serves are not the strength and, and volleys aren't the strength. So what we're going to do is you guys are going to stay back on everything. You're going to serve and stay back. The net player is not – you. I said, you guys can go to the net to pick up a ball if you make a mistake. That's it. <laughs> You're going to stay back. You guys have awesome ground strokes. And they were so mad and offended that that practice, they were serving like 10 miles an hour faster. <laughs> and I was, look, I was looking at Ramsey, and I was like, do they think I'm upset about this? Like, this is awesome. I'm so glad they're serving faster. I wish they had just done this before I had defended him, but that stubbornness, like you can see it come out in the good players. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, you know, it's like I said, there's a degree of stubbornness for sure to every guy that, that gets to a, a level that takes them to a D one collegiate tennis team or, or, you know, I mean, those guys have obviously spent a lot of time on the tennis court training and working on their games and doing those kind of things. And they're, they're obviously competitive individuals. And so when we as coaches kind of challenge them you know, even in those ways, sometimes we don't even realize that they're going to take it the way they take it. But, you know, you, you see that, you see that translate to their competitiveness and the, that stubbornness that has probably gotten them to where they're at in the first place in their game. And and it, it sometimes it's some of the best coaching and you don't even realize that it's happening. So you mentioned earlier, and by the way, I think every coach in any sport does this right but you said oh i plagiarize everything like you hear something great from someone else and you're like man that was awesome i'm going to use that and you've done this your whole career is there any coaching advice that you've picked up from the last year on tour that was new to you that you've kind of made into your your normal staple of coaching advice um and i'm trying to think you know it's one of the things i really really try to do is to is to be very open-minded and um you know, absorb things from other coaches. That being said, at this point in my career and after being on the tour for, you know, 30 plus years, I'm very established in my own mind about how I want to see guys um, setting up to the ball with their footwork, especially. Footwork's like a big deal to me. And it's one of the things that I focus in on right away with guys when I start with somebody. And so from a, from a footwork standpoint, I feel like I'm pretty established with what I want to do 
And I'm not going to change too much of that. I don't think, I, I think it would be hard for somebody to come up with something new or, or that, that I haven't like thought about or, or already have a philosophy in my mind from, from, from that standpoint. That being said, I mean, I think that you still, you question in your mind. I think this is one of the things that that's made me a good coach, probably has made you a good coach, you know, or, or other guys is that you, you're constantly questioning the things that you're doing, you know, and with Tommy, I can tell you where that questioning has come from a lot is that about a year and a half ago, you know, we really, really made a commitment to Tommy becoming a much more aggressive player, a, a, a transition player that comes forward. I mean, our objective at this point is for Tommy to be a great all court player. So I was really pressing him and pushing him to attack and come forward and do that a lot more. And there were times where I'd be watching matches and being like, man, you know, he's coming in and he's getting beat. He's getting passed or he's not the execution on the approach shots isn't good enough. You know, I'm asking him to do these things and maybe it's not the right thing. Maybe, you know, it's, it's leading to him not being able to win as many matches. And so there was a, you know, I was really, really questioning that in my own mind and, and, I talked to a number of different coaches that, you know, that I know really well and that I have a lot of respect for and, you know, just kind of using them as a sounding board a little bit to, to maintain my confidence. And then Tommy wins Stockholm. And if you went back and you watched the lead up to playing in Stockholm, you know, we, he played in Moscow and St. Petersburg and a few other tournaments leading up to that. And he was playing really, really good indoor attacking tennis in all those tournaments. And then that translated and he ends up winning Stockholm, you know, and, and in Stockholm, I mean, he plays Andy Murray, for example, I think in the round of 16 in that tournament, maybe quarters. And he comes in, I think, 40 times in the match. And so we were starting then all of a sudden to see that translation of him attacking and him coming forward, you know, being the right thing. And, and it validated in my mind, okay, this is the direction we have to keep going win, lose, or draw. I mean, that's the style of play that allows Tommy to play his best tennis. One of the things also that I find interesting and that I, I kind of, this is one of the reasons I also pushed him in that direction is because playing that style of tennis keeps Tommy more consistently engaged in the matches because he does have a tendency at times to, to lose focus a little bit. That's been one of the things that we've tried to, to really work on and, and be able to get him to, to maintain and stay in his, his kind of zone mentally and concentration wise. And when he plays that type of tennis, that type of attacking, you know, like I'm looking for these openings, trying to create things in the, in the points, trying to make things happen all the time. It just has a tendency to keep him much more engaged within the matches. And so that's been a benefit that's translated to him improving his ranking and, and beating a lot of the better players out there and, and, and doing those kind of things. So those are all things that from my standpoint, you know, to go back to the specifics of your question about like things that I've learned, you know, I mean, some of that I think I've learned on my own from myself, you know, just seeing those things happening and what's going on with them and everything. But I think as coaches uh, and one of the most important things I've ever learned in my tennis awareness I'm going way, way, way back to when I played junior college tennis. And I had a coach at that time named Rich Anderson, who was a guy who had played Wimbledon, played the U.S. Open. Um, he was coaching a top 50 American ATP player at the time when he was coaching the junior college that I played at, Kenyatta Junior College in Northern California. And um, Rich said, if you want to be a great player, for me, it's translated to hopefully being you know, a very good coach. 
he said, if you want to be a great player, you have to become a student of the game. And becoming a student of the game means that you should know everything there is to know about tennis. You should know the dimensions of the court. You should know the rackets and, and different racket technology and strings. You should know the history of the game. You should be able to look at players from previous generations and eras all the way back to the 20s and 30s and 40s. And, and you learn and take things from those things. You, you, you should look for books and information that you can read. Go back, you know, some of the greatest books written about tennis are still the, like the inner game of tennis and other books like that that were written 25, 30 years ago. But I like to think that I, I maintain uh, a strong attitude and belief about trying to be a student of the game. And, you know, like doing this with you, John, I mean, we, when you get in a room with another coach who's coached at a high level and understands what it means to work with players at that level, whether it's men or women or juniors or collegiate players or pro players, you know, high performance coaching is all very similar in a lot of ways. And man, the conversation can just go on forever because we, we have shared experiences of what you do with those players. And, and you always learn stuff in those conversations, you know, always. I mean, dialogue is definitely one of the best ways to, to gain knowledge. This is, this is my favorite thing about doing the podcast, right? Is I get to do this with coaches and pick their brains. So like what we're doing now, I, I would do all the time if I could, but I want you to go back real quickly. You mentioned at the beginning of your answer that footwork is kind of your big thing. Yeah. Can you talk about maybe let's take the most important footwork key that you have. Is there, is there something that you, you look to right away with footwork that matters to you? I have a, I have a basic standard philosophy of how players should be setting up to hit the ball from basically any position in the court, whether it's a forehand or a backhand. I'm a big believer in trying to work from what would be the ideal footwork for any given ball. So I, I, I often, when I start working with a player, again, regardless of the level of that player, I ask them what their ideal setup would be on a forehand or a backhand and ask them to shadow a swing. And, you know, I'll, I'll often say like, if there was a million dollars on this shot and you have to hit the ball with a, with a degree of aggression that makes it like, you know, challenging from that standpoint, how would you want your, yourself to be set up to the ball? And most players are going to set up the way that I express my philosophy, which would be, Ideally, you know, to load on, for a right-hander, load on your right foot and transfer your weight to your left foot. And, you know, you're stepping in and you're hitting a, a forehand from that position. So that position, anytime you transfer weight from your right side to your left side, regardless of whether that's a fully open stance or a fully closed stance, I simply call that a number one swing. And then if you create that exact same footwork setup, but when you hit, your right foot stays planted in the ground. Your left foot rotates backwards. That's a number two swing. So there's your one and two swings. And those are the two basic fundamental swings that we hit when we're not moving too much in the court. Then you take those, and this is where my philosophy gets a little bit different, is that I'm not a big, I'm not a big believer in trying to fight for or hold your position when you're stretched to the outside of the court on your outside foot, which is a very common thing that coaches teach nowadays is to stay on the outside foot. And then a lot of times from that position, 
you'll see players hop on a wide forehand from their right foot to their right foot, moving laterally to the outside of the court. I try to avoid that. I'm like, if you can load your right foot in the ground and create a number two swing, which means that right foot would stay in the ground through the point of contact, then that's great. But if you have to make that hop to the outside, then depending on the height of the ball, I ask players to do either what we call a run through where you take your feet through and then you make what I call a break step. So again, your right foot comes to the outside and you, you like stop on that foot and, and then push to recover from that position. Or we do what I call the move. And that's like, it's kind of funny because now people that have been around me, they, they know that like the move is like, like if you, you know, we thought we started out the whole conversation talking about Dan McCall. If you ask Dan McCall what the move was, Dan could tell you in a second what the move was. So, and the move is basically, it was developed by me from watching a ton of film on the guy that I think to this day might have the best running forehand in the history of tennis, Pete Sampras. If anyone wants to watch the move, you can go on YouTube. There's a video of me. It's um, Brad Stein Tennis Channel Academy. It was a little, it's about a half hour show that I did. It's about 20 minutes when you take the commercials out. And um, they do a very good job of putting in graphics and showing examples of pro players doing the move. And so those four footworks, one swing, two swing, the move and the run through, those four positions, if you do them correctly, basically cover any ball that's going to occur on your forehand side. So I'm very big on those trying to create one of those four swings based on the ball that you're receiving. And any one of those four, depending on the ball, may be ideal. And again, I go back to the, to the concept that I want to try and see what's the ideal way to generate force on any given ball. And one of those four ways, in my mind, is going to be the best possible way to generate force, the maximum amount of force that you can on any given ball. If you retire as a coach in the next couple of years, you should be a marketer with the move. I mean, I've never <laughs> been, I've, I've never been so intrigued to go watch a YouTube video than right after this and see what the Yeah, you gotta, you gotta watch it. You know, it's like, and then you, you take those things and you translate most of those to the, um, to the backhand side, whether you have a one-hander or a two-hander, you can still do a one swing. You can still do a two swing. The fact is that on the backhand side and particularly with two-handers, which the majority of players nowadays are two-handers, it's amazing how because you have a two-hander, you do a million times more number one swings than you do on a forehand side. You know, even though we're trying to do more damage a lot of times out of the forehand side, the backhand, you know, just having that arm cross over your body and be in that position, you just create way more number one swings. And then again, for me, and, and I'll go back again, I'll, I'll, I'll plagiarize a little bit more from, from my good buddy, Tom Gullickson. You know, everyone, it's very, very popular nowadays to hit balls off the outside foot, whether it's a forehand or a backhand. Tom Gullickson used to say, and I'm a big believer in this, that you don't choose the open stance. The open stance chooses you because the other player has done something to take time away from you or force you into a position where you have to play an open stance backhand. And when that is the case, I'm fine with that. But I don't want players hitting open stance backhands when they don't have to. I want them closing their stance as often as they possibly can. 
so that for me is a little bit of a different philosophy than I think a lot of coaches. You see a lot of coaches nowadays literally feeding balls and training on hitting out of an open stance. We're going to finish up. We're running a little long, so I'm going to narrow it down to the top two Instagram questions. The typical one, which I, I want to make sure you answer. I'm sure you got a great answer for it. What is your best advice for the 4-0 singles player? <laughs> for the 4-0 singles player, wow. Um, fundamentals. It's, I'll, I'll say two things. If you're a 4-0 player, getting better at the fundamentals, all that footwork stuff and your, your swing mechanics, because if you're a 4-0 player, you have some flaws in your swing mechanics and or your footwork. And two, combined with that, Learn to spin the ball. Most players at the 4-0 level aren't very good at creating spin. And the more spin you can create, the more likely you are to cut down on the errors that you make in the game. Beautiful. And let's see if you can guess who asked this, this question. Uh, no idea what any of it means, but he wants to know what is the double reverse Sydney and why or when should it be used? <laughs> Man, um, that has to be someone that I've coached. So, um, I'm going to say that's Steven Amitraj. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> I actually haven't coached Steven, but, uh, we coached together at the UST. I just know Steven's a good buddy of yours and he's a, he's a dookie. I actually was talking with Steven earlier today. What's the double reverse Sydney? That's too funny. It's funny because like when you were talking earlier, John, about, um, about how Jay Lapidus gave that term, you know, to that particular shot and you still have that in your head so I have a whole series of terminology that I use for shot selection on the court and it revolves around Sydney reverse Sydney and double reverse Sydney so so a double reverse Sydney which Stephen knows the answer to this question is when you're in a cross-court rally your opponent takes a ball down the line but doesn't do a particularly good job with it. So you get there and you have plenty of time and you take that ball back up the line behind them when they're expecting you to probably have to play cross court out of that ball. That's called a double reverse Sydney. Okay. So can, can, can you just go ahead and elaborate on what a Sydney and a reverse Sydney are? So a Sydney, the, those, those terms, I'm going to give you guys my whole coaching philosophy. Again, it's like becomes extremely nuanced, but those terms relate to a Sydney is anytime you're in a, in a cross court rally and you change direction on a ball and go down the line. We call that a Sydney instead of calling it, take it down the line. That allows us to have a, a common vocabulary with our players. And they know if I say Sydney, my players know exactly what I'm talking about. And then we have specific criteria that relate to when you change with a Sydney. And then a reverse Sydney is when your opponent has played a Sydney and you get over and you're playing, you're on some degree of defense. And so you're playing cross court out of that ball and your objective on the cross court ball or on the, the reverse Sydney is to play deep enough, hard enough, penetrating enough so that your other player cannot take a full swing and go Sydney again. If your opponent can go Sydney, Sydney, you're in trouble. You're in some serious trouble. And then double reverse is what we talked about before. And to be honest with you, those three patterns of play, if you watch those three patterns on the court, they're what happen about 98% of the time on the court. I absolutely love that. I love that. So, so that's literally, you know, I, I work, almost all my practices are built around 
doing Sydney's reverse Sydney's double reverse Sydney's and training within those. And then again, like I said, they become much more nuanced in what they're doing, you know, but there's, and the, the explanations get deeper and deeper and deeper. And you look at different players and their strengths and weaknesses and whether they should be looking to change direction and do those kind of things more or less from different positions. But, but yeah, I mean, I mean, honestly, the majority of my philosophy is based on those concepts in footwork and those three patterns of play and building from those three patterns of play. Okay. So we got through half of the questions I had for you today. So we're going to have you back on. <laughs> I love, honestly, there, there's like so many gems from this that, that I got. So we're going to have you back on later in the year, maybe when you have a, a downtime near the end of the season with Tommy, but this was awesome. Like I, I couldn't have loved this anymore. Uh, I know you're going to go to Australia soon with Tommy. Best of luck. We'll be watching you this year. And, and thanks for your time. Oh, thanks so much, man. I appreciate doing it. It's always fun to uh, do this kind of stuff with, with guys that are passionate about the game, man. All right. I want to thank Brad for coming on the show today. Obviously, he is a tennis lifer and has picked up so many cool tips and ideas throughout his years as a coach and working with all the great players that he's been with. I loved his footwork principles and, of course, the naming of the Sydney, reverse Sydney, and double reverse Sydney. And it is pretty amazing how those three situations really do make up a bulk of baseline rallies. But the main thing I left this episode with was more motivation to work on the backhand slice with my players. The last few weeks, we've been working on the dink pass, lobbing over the backhand side, and even just keeping the slice low so the opponent has to hit up on their next ball. Spend the next couple weeks adding that to your game and seeing if you can steal points from your opponent from awkward positions in the court. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved in tennis without even hitting a ball.